You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us. Coming up, a massive price break at the Art Gallery of Ontario. Is that going to entice you to actually go check out some art? I know what you're saying. You're saying, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. And I'll tell you what you're going to like is you're going to like that price break. Plus, we are going to play Desert Island Artwork with the AGO's CEO. We are going to force him to pick which painting he would save and guess which one he would take from the AGO. He only gets one. Which one will he take to the Desert Island? And in our second segment... Does the media repeat lies? Do the media lie to you? Is there a bias, a left-wing bias in media? Well, we're going to talk about that, the evidence of it. Plus, we're going to play some attack ads and get some perspective on whether or not they actually work. Big Raptors game tonight. I happen to have noticed the Raptors games, a lot of political ads in there. See, We see them. I see you, Andrew Shearer. And I am going to make the argument about Justin Trudeau is having a Kathleen Wynne moment. That is coming up shortly. But first, I want to read to you an email from the Premier this morning talking about the media and lies. Here's the email that I popped popped up in my inbox. Alan! I love these. They're the personalized. I love them. Alan, what are we supposed to do here? The NDP just lies. Then the media repeats those lies. Pretty soon we've got protesters out there marching for those lies. Here's a fun fact. Increased spending isn't a budget cut. This is an email from Doug Ford asking for money. Might be hard for some of the professional protesters out there to wrap their heads around it, but we haven't made any cuts in health care or education. Funding this year is more than last year. Funding next year is more than this year. The professional public sector union-backed protesters can't have it all. But they're lying. Want to fight back? Click here to donate $1 right now. Let's show them where their antics get them in the next election. Doug. Thanks, Doug. That is an email from Doug Ford. To me, personalized. I'm sure I'm the only one that got it. Do you... Do you think that the cheese has slipped off the cracker when it comes to journalists? Do you believe what the Premier says? You know, I I have been thinking a lot about Justin Trudeau lately, which is, I know, unfortunate. On a lot of levels, not politically, I am not saying that I am biased one way or the other, but, you know... Every time I think about him, he's doing that. He's doing the da- the Bhangra dance. And remember that in the trip to India, and I just think, come on, dude. Uh, but I have been thinking about this because people continue to ask me because they know I'm a political journalist by trade. They ask me all the time. And I had this just last night. Somebody said to me, "What's going to happen in the fall? You think Trudeau is going to win it? Can he win it? Can he can he get back? Is what, what's what's up? What's what's for sure?" And my answer is always the same. I don't know. I've got a clue. And uh, if anybody tells you, if anyone tells you that they do know, they are lying to you. I am telling you, they are lying. Or possibly they're pollsters. One of the two. 
You can decide whether or not there is some gray area in there. Pollsters right now over there. Pollsters at Ipsos are like, are you kidding me? But no, seriously, uh, there's no way to know. There's too much runway. But the polls are worrying for the liberals. And I want to quote for you a really interesting article by Andrew Coyne in the National Post, who he talks about the uh, 20 points in the polls in two and a half years. That's what the liberals have dropped, according to data collected by the CBC's poll tracker site. But a government falling this far, this fast, in its first term, writes Andrew Coyne, to have done so, what is more, without even the aid of a recession, with unemployment and mortgage rates, and both in single digits, and separatism in Quebec at least uh, quiet, the only parallel comes to mind is with the first Mulroney government. That government, it will be recalled, managed to recover, winning re-election. He goes on to write, Andrew Coyne in the National Post, It's difficult to avoid the conclusion that the party's unpopularity is connected to that of its leader. That's true for most parties at most times, of course. Canadian politics is unusually fixated on the leader. But today's Liberal Party has taken the cult worship of the leader to new heights. Indeed, it is almost wholly his creation. He alone could have raised the Liberals from the near-death experience of 2011. Or so it must have seemed to the party, which was thus spared any more searching examination of its predicament. Andrew Coyne writes, And the public would appear to have fallen desperately out of love with Justin Trudeau. The latest Angus Reid poll gives him an astonishing net approval rating of minus 39. Now, I connect this, that is Andrew Coyne, by the way, reading from the Book of Coyne in the National Post. All hell. But uh, my comparison here is to Kathleen Wynne. And I think we saw much of the same last year, where Kathleen Wynne herself was so deeply unpopular, and that her entire government and her win, her astonishing win to bring back a majority for the liberals, was seen as the same sort of thing that I'm talking about here from Mr. Coyne. And I wrote uh, an analysis in the wake of the Sudbury by-election scandal, sort of looking at what I believe to be the turning point for Kathleen Wynne. And much will be written in the future about whether or not SNC-Lavalin is a turning point for Justin Trudeau. But for Kathleen Wynne, I wrote this shortly after the Sudbury trial had wrapped up. Those good intentions from Kathleen Wynne and what voters think of them are really what's being judged here. What is at stake in Sudbury has little to do with charges from a never-before-tested statute and everything to do with the kind of leader Wynne promised she would be. It was in Sudbury that the promise of a different kind of politician first seemed impossible to square with the reality of doing politics in Ontario. With a clumsy use of political muscle, Wynne demonstrated she was just like all the other backroom wheelers and dealers, no matter what her intentions might be. And does that not ring somewhat true to what is happening federally right now? That same sort of dissatisfaction with, dude, you said you were different. And it turns out not to be true.
I'll just let you digest that as I bring up this little tasty morsel. Did you hear this? Denver voters have narrowly approved a grassroots ballot to decriminalize psilocybin mushrooms, commonly referred to as psychedelic mushrooms. Now, what appeared to be a failed effort on the evening of Tuesday's referendum made an unexpected comeback the following afternoon when Denver election officials released the final count. A slim majority voted in favor. Now, the action does not actually legalize psilocybin mushrooms, but it effectively bars the city from prosecuting or arresting adults 21 or older who possess them. In the ballot language, adults can even grow the fungus for personal use. Dude, your bathroom is disgusting. No, no. That's just I'm just growing some I'm just growing some magic mushrooms in there. Uh, and these changes could take effect as soon as next year. Now what happened in Denver may be the start of a much larger movement which seeks safe access to psilocybin for its purported medicinal value. Supporters point to research suggesting that psilocybin is not addictive, causes few ER visits compared to other illegal drugs. You know, it just opens up your mind. James Bond. Ah, mushrooms. Thank you. This is the Alan Carter radio program, and what would you think of mushrooms being legal in Ontario? I mean, hey, out there in the western, you know, in the Denver area, you know, that's where they started with the old uh, old legalization of marijuana, so that may be marching our way. Could be coming our way. And then you just you, you just like grow them in your front yard, wouldn't that be? It would be weird. It would be trippy, and it would be strange. And when we come back, we'll do all of those things. Welcome back. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Just into the inbox here, a message from Ken that says, You are the lamest talk show host on the air, bar none. Actually, I I misread that. Uh, The you are the, the is block caps. So let me do that again. You are the lamest talk show host on the air bar none (laughs) well you know that's fine that's fine how does donald trump feel about this program donnie don't be rude can you give us a question don't be rude i'm not going to give you a question i'm not going to give you a question can you stay categorical you are fake news Uh, am i fake news is this fake news is there a left-wing bias to this program to the MSM, the mainstream media, whatever in the world that means. Marsha Barber is a professor at the Ryerson School of Journalism and joins me on the line. Hello. 
Hello. Let me just read to you a email I got from the Premier. I'll just read you the top of it. It begins, Alan, what are we supposed to do here? The NDP just lies, then the media repeats those lies. Is that true? Well, the media reports, so if there's a statement from the NDP, the media reports, but um, framing it like that is really quite bizarre. What do you mean? Well, we're talking about reporting, reporting of news. So if something is significant, if it's reported, um, yes, of course, you're, you're going to hear if, uh, if the leader of the NDP makes a statement, it is the duty of reporters to report that statement. However, it's also the duty of the, the media to analyze um, if there are people who, who disagree, if there are people who support, we need to know about that as consumers of the media as well. Here's something that, that I think is absolutely true, and I think the Premier has a point, and that is when we hear the complaints about cuts or you know the, the impact uh, of various funding changes, yeah. the, what plays better each and every time are the complaints. That's what leads. Is that not true? The complaints about funding. Yeah, but there's a, a legitimate place for that. If but is there is enough context proposed, being placed? But is there enough context being placed on the other side of the story, which is, holy smokes, we got a huge debt. But usually you see that as well. I mean, the, the criticisms, in a way, are more interesting. They're more important. They're more dramatic. So, yes, you are going to hear the criticisms, but any reporter who's doing his or her job is also going to talk about the reasons for the, uh, for the cuts or w- whatever the situation is. So you do get that as well. The Premier has said in the past that uh, he gets along with individual members of the media, but then when he goes to see the reports, the cheese has slipped off the cracker and that there is a clear left-wing bias. Do you see from your vantage point a clear left-wing bias in the media? No, I I don't see a clear left-wing bias in the media. Um, I've been involved in research in this area. And, and to take one example, when elections are being reported, equal time is given in media outlets, responsible media outlets, you have equal time given to different parties. So the, the media, you know, is also accused of right-wing bias. It depends on the media. But if it's doing its job properly, it's going to be accused of both. I suppose that's that's the win when we are accused of bias from both sides. I always take that as a mark of doing my job well, is when I get complaints from absolutely, both sides. Absolutely, absolutely, as, as well you should. And I think that is a hallmark of responsible media, when you, you know both sides have access to grind. It, there, much has been made from the media, and I am absolutely guilty of it, which is the reason we're talking about it. Yeah. Much has been made about that there's a danger here because of this, you know, fake news from Trump or Doug mm-hmm. Ford saying that there are lies being repeated. Do you see a societal danger there? I see a danger if news isn't fact-checked. 
I mean, the the job, the reason um, Trump has been a- accused of this is because there are uh, some wonderful journalists who are fact-checking out there. And maybe the, the problem is more fact-checking needs to be done, you know, whether it's um, on the left or on the right. But that is the job of the media, to fact-check. So, you know, I see it as a danger if proper fact-checking isn't taking place. Marcia, here, I'm going to last word here on this, and I want you to talk directly to my listeners, and there are going to be many of them okay. who say, you are out of your mind, there is clearly a left-wing bias to the media, I see it each and every day. How do you respond to that? Well, which media, if I'm talking directly to your listeners, um, go and read editorials in the National Post, for example. Uh, it depends how you choose your media. And if you're, uh, if you're looking for bias, I mean, editorials are about opinion. So you can certainly find opinion that's left-wing or right-wing. But look for responsible media. Look for fact-checking. And I, I think that will really help. It's a reality check if you do that. Marsha Barber is a professor at the Ryerson School of Journalism. Thank you so much for being on the program. A pleasure. Now, of course, all of this means that we need to fact check and we need to be able to say, well, this is correct and this is not correct. And that can be difficult. And it can be difficult, especially when there is so much spin out there. And the spin is underway like a Harlem Globetrotter spinning a ball on his finger. And I make that basketball reference because tonight, big Raptors game. I got my jersey on, folks. Go Raps. And if you watch the game tonight, you are probably going to see some ads. Probably you'll see those conservative ads talking about Justin Trudeau, not as advertised. I want to play for you, though, a attack ad from the conservatives that takes us back a little bit. This is from 2015. Let's talk about Justin. I see he's included his picture. Let's start with the experience section. Nothing about balancing a budget or making a payroll. Didn't he say budgets balance themselves? So what are his policies? Legalizing marijuana. Is that the biggest problem we have to solve? So when has he ever had to make a tough choice? People, being prime minister is not an entry-level job. I'm not saying no forever, but not now. All right, get to the hair. Get to the hair. Nice hair, though. Justin Trudeau. He's just not ready. Okay, that was was a lot of wind-up for the hair. It was really a lot. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry you had to suffer through that. But so the reason I play that is because that thing was carpet-bombed for years for us. Boom! And then the election came around, and it turned out the nice hair guy actually could put a sentence together. And we're like, well, holy crap. Turns out this Trudeau dude actually can walk, sort of, and talk, sort of. And then, boom, the expectations were so lowered that I think it had a boomerang effect, and that negative ad did not work and certainly did not help the conservatives. 
Mike Van Solen is a managing principal at Navigator Toronto, and he's on this radio program regularly. I hope we don't pay you. We don't give you money, do we, Mike? <laughs> Unfortunately, you don't. But oh, if, you, uh, if you feel that should be changed, I'm uh, no. happy to have the conversation. You know how cheap I am, Mike. I'm not, <laughs> you're not getting a dime from me. Unless I need you for crisis management and you have to bring me a suit while I'm in jail. Then I'll pay. All right, good. Well, we know the terms then. All right, so let's talk about these ads. Do you agree with me that that 2015 ad by the conservatives really blew up in their face? I, well, no, I don't agree. I don't agree it blew up in their face. It didn't work. Uh, it, like, if we're going to judge this as a binary uh, piece that, you know, it worked if the Conservatives won the election and it didn't work if Justin, uh, you know, Justin won the election. And certainly uh, the campaign overall wasn't enough uh, to return the Conservatives to power and Justin prevailed. I think there was a lot of factors that went into that. You know, people were growing tired of, of, of Stephen Harper and that government. And so that time to time for a change uh, sentiment, uh, I think, had a big impact. But if the question is, do negative ads work? Yeah, they do work. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll see in polls that, you know, the, a pollster will say, uh, will ask Canadians, do you like negative ads? And, the, and they will inevitably say, no, they don't like them. But this is how that conversation plays out all the time, is that, you know, I can talk to a friend and, and who's outside of the political world, and he'll say, I really hate all these negative ads, you know, it's terrible. Um, and I go, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I, I get you. You don't like them. And then the next, in the very next breath, they'll say, yeah, but, you know, that Justin, I don't know if he's really ready for the job yet. So the, the sentiments uh, attach and, and people latch onto them. Well, they don't like the ads. Uh, when they're well done, they stick. Um, let, let, me play, let me play for you then the uh, one that we'll probably see tonight. I don't want to play all of it because we, we take this is a private uh, business here. This is not the CBC. <laughs> we generally take money for ads, but here's one that's running now from the Conservatives. His administration continues to be rocked by chaos and controversy. Get to the hair. The fallout continues over the firing of his attorney general and the resignations of his top advisors. He's not a feminist. He's engaging in a cover-up after he shut down two separate investigations into his scandals. He looks Questions are now shoes. being raised about his competence and judgment. In response, he's again lashing out and threatening lawsuits against his critics. Justin Trudeau, he's not who you thought he was. Okay, he's come not. on. Uh, not as advertised. That's... Yeah. Can the Conservatives send us a couple hundred bucks for that? That's ridiculous. I mean, do you think that thing's effective? We're, we're going to find out. Uh, no, I no, no, I, Mike, don't do this backward. Oh, well, it was effective if they won. No, that's is it effective or not? I, I think it has a real chance of being effective. It, it, what the reality is that Justin Trudeau in the last election ran on uh, a bunch of ideas. And that it wasn't the Liberal Party, it was Justin Trudeau. And he was going to do well by women. He was going to do well by uh, the First Nations communities. He was going to do well by getting resource projects built. So the challenge, uh, and, and we'll find out how much Canadians care about it, but the the challenge is, do, do, uh, you know, what the Conservatives are throwing out there is, he promised you all these things. Uh, did you expect them? Uh, and do you want to give him another chance? So uh, he offered sunny ways, and they're trying to attack that premise and say, look, he's, he's not what you voted for. Um, so, so we know negative advertising works, but it, it works if the, the sentiment put forward, the idea put forward, attaches with what Canadians actually sort of believe in their hearts. Um, you know, uh, with Ignatia, if it was, you know, just visiting. And I think people sort of thought, you know, there's a fancy guy. He was at Harvard. He was away for 20 years. He came back. And, and that sort of worked uh, in, in that campaign. 
So I, I do think, you know, they, they no doubt have done a whole bunch of focus group testing. They've talked to a lot of Canadians. And this is the idea that they've had to put in the front window to connect with a negative idea and sentiment that Canadians have about Justin Trudeau. But it only works if it's a real thing, if, if, it's, a, if it's a belief that people, uh, you know, hold themselves. All right, Mike, I appreciate you being on the program. Your check Great, I'll, is yeah, in yeah. the mail. Thanks so much, Alan. Have a good afternoon. <laughs> That's Mike Van Solid from Navigator. Always great having him on the show. Hey, you know what we're going to talk about next? We're going to talk about your brain. This is your brain on the Alan Carter Radio Show. We're back in a moment. Thank you for spending some time with us, and we want to take you back down to Queen's Park in just a moment for something that just happened. Uh, it's news about Sam Oosterhof. You may have heard this name in the news recently. Mr. Oosterhof is a progressive conservative MPP from the Niagara region. He's actually uh, the MPP for Tim Hudak's riding, formerly Tim Hudak's riding. Uh, you may have heard that he, he got into a little bit of trouble because the cops got called on some old people doing a read-in in his office. And like, dude, seriously, there's people reading. You didn't need to call the fuzz. You don't need to go to the 5-0 for this. Uh, and uh, he put out a statement last night, quote, I agree that things could have been handled differently, but my team and I take the privacy of constituents very seriously. We will be reaching out to these constituents to set up face-to-face meetings to discuss their concerns. So, oh, and here, we'll be going over security procedures and protocols to make sure we do better in the future. So, no more raging grannies getting locked up and called away. But this news now. Mr. Oosterhoff leaving question period today to go outside and speak to an anti-abortion rally. Here is what Mr. Oosterhoff had to say to reporters. Why aren't you answering the question, Sam? Why are you running away, Sam? Sam, come on, answer the question. Pro-life, I have always said I'm pro-life, and I'll always speak for children who don't have a voice to speak for themselves. I'll always speak for children who don't have a voice to speak for themselves. Sorry, guys, this is a safety thing. Step in from the elevator. I realize I was doing that. Sam, what were you saying to the protesters outside? Guys, we have time for two questions, and then he's getting in the elevator. To quote Dr. Zeus, a person's a person, no matter how small. I've always said I'm pro-life. I will always speak for children who are too young to speak for themselves, who have no voice. I will always be a voice for the voiceless. Okay. One fish, two fish, red fish, black fish. What? You're going, Doctor. You're going. You're going, Doctor Zeus. He's entitled to his opinion, clearly. But I just wanted to play that for you. I just I'm going to leave that there. Green Eggs and Ham, Sam Osterhoff, who is, I believe, 21. So not that long ago that someone was probably reading Dr. Zeus to him. Not that long. Not that long ago. 
But he's an MPP, uh, and and uh, you know, listen, I just I just leave that there. But I want to talk about something called epigenetics. I hope I got that right. It's emotional trauma that can change your genetic code, and not only that, but it can be passed on to future generations. This is some complicated stuff, and to help me understand it is Jaime Anisman, who is professor at Carleton in the Department of Neuroscience. I feel super dumb, Jaime, already, just introducing this. Okay. Help me. I'm glad to talk to you. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Because I I think I might get some emotional trauma for not knowing about this. But what you're talking about is quite serious, that something like post-traumatic stress disorder, those sort of things can actually change our genetic code? No. Um, It's not actually changing the genetic code. The the genome is left the way it is. What happens is uh, certain chemical changes will occur, and what they will do is shut down or excite uh, certain genes so they're essentially more active and have greater or lesser effects. The code itself has it has not changed at all, okay? Um, and it's thought, at least in animal studies, that once these epigenetic changes occur, and if they occur on germline cells like egg or uh, sperm, then they can pass. They can be passed from one generation to the next. Now, this is pretty firm uh, in animal studies, although there's some debate as to how much of this happens, um, how much of this passage happens from females to offspring versus males, uh, parent to offspring. Uh, in the human literature, it's much less clear. There's far, there are far fewer studies done, in part because it takes so much longer to look at three generations of people to determine if the same genes uh, or the same uh, epigenetic changes are present. So what we're saying here is that the, the, the impact of something like an emotional trauma could very well have multi-generational uh, consequences. In theory, that's correct. But there are many other ways in which you can get these intergenerational effects, lasting multiple generations, actually, uh, without having to resort to an epigenetic explanation. Uh, but let, let's use an example. Um, a First Nations person, for example, brought up on an Indian residential school. Their abuse are there. Uh, their identity is stolen from them. Um, they're undergoing all sorts of trauma. They, um, when they leave the school, some years later, uh, their parenting skills will be will be very much like, presumably, uh, the abusive people who take care of them. They, in turn, may not be very good parents, and their children will learn from them and then pass on those parenting skills. So one generation after another uh, is essentially duplicating what they've experienced as a parent and adverse effects arise. We don't have to blame it on epigenetic changes. It's also the case that after a trauma, we need some, some ability, some time to heal. That means being in a good place where we, where we do feel safe. Um, for the kids who were brought up in residential schools, they didn't find a safe place afterwards. Instead, they went back to reserves that had now been destroyed because um, the kids had left, uh, parents were despondent, things were generally falling apart. And so instead of being able to recover, as I said, having a safe place, they didn't have that opportunity. 
Jaime Anisman is a professor at Carleton in the Department of Neuroscience, and this is fascinating stuff. And, Professor, I, I thank you for helping me sound or at least believe that I might be slightly smarter than when we started this interview. My pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much. Do you dig on the art? Are you all about the art? Do you enjoy Do you enjoy all the meats of the cultural stew? The Art Gallery of Ontario is now reaching out to its younger audience with free admission to those 25 and under and hoping to broaden its reach with a $35 annual pass. Now, those changes is just a one-year deal. That's an experiment. It begins on May 25th, and I am pleased to welcome to the program... AGO Gallery Director and CEO, Stefan Yost. Thanks for having me. So you've cut prices drastically. Why? Well, we want to be more accessible. We want more people in Ontario to come by and make the AGO kind of part of their life and make visiting museums a habit. In other business, this is sometimes called a fire sale, a, oh my goodness, we're going out of business. No, not at all. We actually have had, the last two years have been our record year. We run in the black. We're very, very conservative fiscally. Um, And when you're doing well, um, in my opinion, that's when you should innovate. So um, we've got 100,000 members, million visitors. We're doing good. I think a lot of uh, listeners might be wondering, what kind of provincial grant money does the AGO get? So, so it's great. We get basically a third of our budget is fundraised from private philanthropy. A third comes from the province, and a third is earned. We've got a, just a really robust food and beverage and retail, et cetera. So it's a third, third, third. <laughs> yeah, because I've been in the gift shop, and wow, uh, awesome stuff. But um, let's just say it's not bargain basement. But I love it. No, no, no. It's designed to um, raise money for the museum. But it's a sane place to shop. A lot of people go, like, do one shop, stop shopping at Christmas time, you know? Oh, yeah. They don't have to deal with 20 stores. They just come there, get it done. And uh, listen, uh, there is some cool stuff there. I have, in in the past, uh, been a member, uh, enjoyed my time there. But then I just sort of, after a while, you think, "Ah, do I really need to re-up? Is that part of the problem you're facing? Um, well, what we know is that when you, if you re-up three years in a row, you'll probably re-up for 10. So we've, with a $35 annual pass, which means, you know, $35 is pretty reasonable, we hope that people re-up. We're doing it as a one-year pilot because, quite honestly, a $35 deal is a really good deal. Um, but private philanthropy has stepped up to back it at tune of $1.8 million to test it, see if we can do it. Um, we're betting on our public, and when we've done that, We've usually done well. What does this mean for how you will program the museum, considering that you are not only lowering the price for membership, but also free for under 25? 
Yeah, you know, we care about our members a lot. Um, and we're not changing the membership structure. We're just adding this $35 annual pass. And right now, if you're of limited means and come to the AGO and buy a ticket, we don't know who you are. And so what this helps is that we'll be able to now communicate. And when we communicate with people, and as we come, become more populist, um, of course, uh, what we show will change too because we cater to our audience. We're, we're no different than a radio program or a business. So populist, explain what that means in terms of art. So we like to, we believe in great art. That's the bottom line. We want excellence, but excellence can be found in different places. So like the Guillermo del Toro exhibition, which was um, one of the most popular exhibitions we've ever done. He's Toronto-based, world-famous filmmaker, um, but that was populist. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't Monet's on the wall. It was kind of stuff from his movies, etc. And we will try to get a balance between really populist and then maybe some things that are a bit more, well, call it nerdy. <laughs> is that what they call it in the art I do. world? Do I, <laughs> I call it nerdy. You know, I, stuff that's really. You know, I, I think we should have stuff that's super intellectual, but I think we should have also stuff that's super accessible. Yeah, in, in the political world, that's wonkery. Is yeah, exactly. Sort of, exactly. So we, we're going to be wonky occasionally, <laughs> and we'll be um, we'll be really populist occasionally. Uh, are you concerned about what this means for you know the, the amount of people in the gallery? Uh, I have been there on a Saturday or a Sunday or, goodness gracious, on a Wednesday when it's free. But, yeah. you know, wow, there's a lot of people in there. Yeah, no, we're, we're, we're connecting with our audience. I mean, um, that I, which, hey, that's, that's any business's job, and that's my job, too. Um, and if you want a more quiet time, you know, Tuesday morning at 1030 is, is you know, <laughs> a great time for introverts to come to the museum. Uh, I love it. I love it. All right, uh, Stephen, could we do a little something here, a little something I like to call Desert Island Artwork? Desert Island Artwork, okay. Yeah, all right, so let's pretend the zombie apocalypse is upon us. Okay. And your job is you have to choose what art to save and what to leave behind. Oh, God, okay, okay, Desert Island Apocalypse, what am I going to grab? Okay. Yeah, what are you going to take? You're going to have to leave something behind. Okay, from the AGO. Well, I'm going to start in the AGO, and then we're going to go bigger. So here, okay, from, gotta, here from the AGO. Massacre of the Innocents by Rubens. You're, you're going to take that? That's the one you're taking? Yeah, because, you know, it was the world's most uh, expensive painting until Da Vinci knocked it off that um, slot about a year ago. So. Oh, oh, so what? Uh, Lauren Harris, goodbye, Group of Seven, and Ah, Carr. kill me, kill me. <laughs> I love Lauren okay. Harris. Okay, well, well, maybe we'll do the... No, but here, pick between these two. So oh, you yeah. get to pick between Lauren Harris and A.Y. Jackson. Who Lauren do you go Harris. with? Lauren Harris. All right. Uh, and let's go uh, bigger now. Uh, you get to save either Guernica... Uh, by Picasso or uh, a Monet, let's say, uh, what, well, water lilies. Oh, God. Um, I'm going to go for the water lilies. You're leaving the behind the Picasso. Yeah, you know. That is, I, 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 that, I, that, I love, that was on the cover of my, like, grade 10 history textbook, and yeah. I love it. I still love it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Here's, yeah, that's, God, these are terrible these are, choices. These are tough. Know. All right, I'm going to give you... Here is the last one, and this okay. one may be the toughest yet. All right. This is uh, Stefan Yost, who is the CEO of the Art Gallery of Ontario, playing a little desert island artwork. What would you take? Would you take Mona Lisa? Uh-huh. Or dogs playing poker? You know, it's a hard choice. It's really hard. But, you know, because Beyonce likes the Mona Lisa, I'm going for the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa it is. Thank you so much, Stefan. I appreciate you being on the program.
Come Bye to the now. museum. All right. See ya. That was the CEO of the Art Gallery of Ontario talking about the uh, lowered prices. We have just a couple of minutes here left on the program. And if you listen regularly, you know that we have an army of interns here. They are entirely unpaid. We do not give them anything, not even snacks. There are snacks here. You know that there are, there are free snacks here. We don't give it to the interns. Like there's bananas and stuff like that. You can have bananas, but only the employees. We don't let the interns eat. We just make them rip off the wire copy and what they do is they just take the wire copy they print it right off they rip it right off and then they hand it to me and it's ice cold ice cold i have not seen any of this i am going to rip and i'm going to read hit me one two one two three rip and read sheep registered as pupils in bid to save school classes Fifteen sheep have been registered at a French primary school as part of a novel bid to save classes at risk of closure. A small town of less than 4,000 people in the foot of the Alps have been told that it would have to scale back lessons because of falling pupil numbers. There are only 261 children at the school, but now they have been joined by more than a dozen sheep in a symbolic move to tackle what parents have described as a miserable situation. It's almost mutton. Next, doctors find spider building nest inside man's ear. A Chinese doctor shared video of the unusual cause of a patient's ear discomfort, a spider building a nest inside his head. The video, filmed at a hospital in Yangzhou, Jiangsu province, shows the inside of an ear belonging to a patient identified by the surname Li. Lee came into the hospital complaining of discomfort to the ear. A doctor looked inside to discover a small spider was building a nest inside the man's ear canal. The doctor said, Charlotte, we're out of time. We'll see you again tomorrow.